invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. It comes this morning from 1 Samuel, chapter 29, verses 9 through 11. Achish answered David, I'm convinced that you are as reliable as an angel of God. But the Philistine commanders have said he must not go into battle with us. So get up early in the morning, you and your master's servants who came with you. And when you've all gotten up early, go as soon as it's light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for another opportunity to worship you together today. Help us push aside the distractions and concerns of the week as we incline our ears and our hearts to your word. May your spirit rest on Pastor Jeff as he brings the message, and may we leave this place with a fresh commitment to serve you and love one another. You are our shepherd, and we are the sheep of your pasture. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and sit down. Good morning. Great to see you all. I just want to encourage you, if you do have a bulletin, you can track with my message today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 30. But before we get there, I do just have a little announcement. As most all of you know, Teresa Stonecipher, Teresa and uh, Drew are moving to Minneapolis. And so she's had to resign her position here, sadly, or sadly, uh, as our children's director. And uh, we have just this last week hired her, her replacement, who is Elizabeth Springer. She is going to be working as our children's administrator, children's ministry administrator. So in the coming weeks, you'll have an opportunity to interact with her. And as you do, if you're a parent, uh, please do encourage her, get to know her. She'll want to get to know you. And uh, we praise the Lord for sending such a fantastic, warm, friendly human being uh, to to us, to our body. Well, um, we're going to continue with our series Shepherd, poet, fugitive, king, the life of David. And today's message is, but David found strength in the Lord. Uh, When Carrie and I first moved to Spokane, Washington from Minneapolis, we were moving back to the Pacific Northwest from whence we came. And uh, when we first moved into the Spokane area, I was struggling to find a, a, just land at a job. So I went to work for a temp agency, and they just placed me variously for two, or three or four weeks at various jobs, and I just did temp work, temporary work uh, for those jobs, and I landed at a job that seemed like it would be a really good fit. I mean, it, they paid well. For a young guy, 25-year-old guy, they paid really well. Uh, it was a solid job, a solid company, and I had worked my way up from the mailroom over six months into the data entry division of this insurance company, and I hated every single second of it. I thought I was going to go crazy. And at the beginning, when they, when they brought all the temps in, they said, now there are a few positions that we're going to hire at the end of this six months. And so you got to work hard and see if, see if you make it. And uh, I remember the, my last day of work there. I showed up and I sat down at my computer terminal. I got out all my, my stack of of uh, insurance papers, and I got ready to enter some data, and my boss made a beeline for me. And I thought, oh no, here it comes. I thought he was gonna offer me the job. (laughs) And I was worried about that, but instead he said, you know what, Jeff, you've done a good job, man. This is no reflection on your performance, but we decided to go with other candidates, and, uh, and, and so this will be your last day. 
And I remember in that moment, I got the biggest grin on my face, and I could not suppress it. And then when I finished my day, I left and went out and got in my little Cavalier, my little Chevy Cavalier car, car, and I was really sad, even though I just really didn't like the job. I didn't want to be there. I was actually happy. I was relieved to find out that I could go and find another job. Um, But I was also really kind of dejected because it really hurts to be rejected, doesn't it? And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a romantic rejection, a job rejection, a friendship, college, a rejection letter from a publisher. It doesn't matter what kind of rejection it is. It just hurts. In the moment, it stings. And in chapter 29 that, that Michelle just read, David and his men are rejected. It didn't feel very great at the time, I'm sure, but his heart wasn't really in it anyway. Surely he didn't want to fight against Saul. He's avoided that at every turn in this story. Surely he didn't want to be known as the king of Israel who once fought against Israel. And this would have been an absolute disaster later on. So God providentially keeps him now. He keeps him from fighting against his own people by stirring up controversy among the Philistine commanders. What providence? David didn't get the job. God's providence can be seen in keeping him from doing this. And God's providence is shown in an early return to the city where they were camping out. 600 men and all their wives and children and the elderly in a place called Ziklag. The town where they had all sort of uh, held up on the outskirts of Philistia. And when they return to Ziklag, they come back to an absolute horror show. It's a crime scene. Let's pick up with verse 1. As David and his men arrived in Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had raided the Negev and attacked and, and burned Ziklag. They also kidnapped the women and everyone in it, from the youngest to the oldest. They had uh, killed no one, but had carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men arrived at the town, they found it burned. Their wives, sons, and daughters had been kidnapped. And David and his troops and the troops with him wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had also been kidnapped. David was in an extremely difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him, for they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. Who could blame them? But David found strength in the Lord his God. And David said to the priest Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod, the priestly ephod, the vestment. And so Abiathar brought it to him, and David asked, or he inquired of the Lord, as was his custom, should I pursue these raiders? Will I overtake them? And the Lord replied to him, yeah, pursue them, for you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people. So David and 600 men went with him, and they came to the Wadi Besor, uh, where some stayed behind. David and 400 of the men continued on to the pursuit, while 200 stopped because they were just too exhausted to even cross the wadi, Besor. And so I think the first thing we see here is that David models finding strength in the Lord when nobody else is interested in this. We see God providentially providing for and overseeing David's life and choices. God rescues him from disaster, the disaster of fighting his own people. God provides a message for him in the midst of of this, of the ruins. And God keeps the women and children safe while they're in the hands of the Amalekites. 
And now the Amalekites, just so you know, were a relentless adversary of Israel. Not only of Israel, but every tribe in this land. No one liked them. They are the descendants of Amalek, one of the sons of Eliphaz, the grandson of Esau. They're, so they're Edomites or Esauites. And so the history of their conflict with Israel in particular cannot be overstated. Years before, the Amalekites, if you recall your Bible history, had obstructed Israel's entrance into the promised land with the vow that they would kill every single Israelite. And so this is why in modern times and in World War II with the Nazis and now today with Hamas and Hezbollah, this is why you, you see Israel referring to these people as the Amalekites because of their antagonism toward the people of Israel. And this crazy ancient nomadic tribe of marauders, these raiders, have now met their match in David. Remember back in Judges 6 and 7, God had delivered them from the Amalekites once before, but brother, this ain't no local judge carrying out a regional deliverance. This is God's anointed man, the greatest king of all Israel, the archetype, the prototype for Jesus of Nazareth, the future Messiah. There is, listen, if, if David is on your side, there is no safer place you can be. But if you're on the other side of him, there's no more dangerous place you can be in this world. David is a man of war, and he's a man of God. And then we see the soldiers. Well, the soldiers, like David, are equally devastated, and they begin to turn on David. We see this. They threaten to stone him. Morale is low. The outlook is bleak. It's a difficult thing to find yourself in a position in a situation that you couldn't have predicted, David couldn't predict this, couldn't have predicted this, and you didn't cause, but now you have to solve. You have to be part of the solution. And when those around you begin to question your leadership and your legitimacy, where do you turn? Intense sorrow and loss can cause us to turn to anger. As we look for someone to blame, someone to discharge this electricity in the direction of, and then we have David. David, the whole scene is disheartening. It's dismaying. And that's an understatement. But David knows where his strength lies. He's the only one in the story who does know that. It is in the Lord his God. The text says that they wept so loudly they didn't have any more tears. Have you ever been there? For those of you who have, you know exactly what is going on in this passage. I just don't even have any strength left to weep these tears. And if you haven't been there, you will be. Someday, something is going to touch your life that is going to exhaust you with tears and weeping. And it's a helpless place where our despair can begin to take on a life of its own. Number two, hope is then restored through a providential encounter. Verses 11 through 20, it says, David's been found an Egyptian just out there in the open company, uh, country. And brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. And then they gave him some pressed figs and two clusters of raisins from their own provisions. After he ate it, he, his strength was revived. For he hadn't eaten any food or drink, drunk water for three days and three nights. And then David said to him, who do you belong to? Where are you from? I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite man. Ding, ding, ding. He said, my master abandoned me when I got sick three days ago. And then he raided the south country of the Cherethites, uh, the territory of Judah, and the south country of Caleb. Uh, and then we burned Ziklag, Ziklag. 
David doesn't let on that he just came from Ziklag, that he's the man who, who is in charge of that place. And so David said to, uh, said to him, asked him, will you lead me to these raiders? And he said, swear to me by God that you won't kill me or turn me over to the master and I will, my master and I will lead you to them. So now he's caught on these men who look like they've just come from war <laughs> and look like they're ready for war are probably looking for my master. He's put it together. So he did. He led them and there were uh, the, and there were the Amalekites spread out over the entire area, eating, drinking, celebrating because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. And David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of, of the next day. None, none of them escaped except 400 young men who got on camels and just hightailed it out of there. And David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken. He also rescued his two wives. Nothing of theirs was missing from the youngest to the oldest, including the sons and the daughters. And all of their plunder, the Amalekites had taken. And David got everything back. He took the flocks and the herds, which were driven ahead of the livestock, and the people shouted, this is David's plunder. And so David shows the Egyptian man, we note in the story, he shows this Egyptian man compassion before he knows where this Egyptian man is coming from, before he knows that this slave is a potential asset in this contest that he's about to enter with the Amalekites. And David's men are exhausted from a long day's travel from the, the front lines back to their encampment. Think about it for a second. Just think about this text. They are emotionally spent. They have nothing left in the tank. They have traveled a long three-day journey to get back to Ziklag, having been dismissed from battle. And now they come back and find their whole village burned to the ground and all their wives and daughters and everything taken. And now they find this Egyptian in the open country. And what do they do? They show him compassion and they give out of their lack. They give not when it's convenient for them. They give when it's not. And David teaches his band of brothers this lesson. This is what it means to follow after God's heart. It means to give when it costs you. Not when it's convenient for you. Even when you're, you really, what you feel is rage and deep sorrow. And we also see that God is obviously seen in this providential encounter. Now, it doesn't say that God protected the women and the children. It doesn't say that God led them to the Egyptian. God didn't turn, you know, like uh, put a, some tongues of fire over top of him to say, this is the guy, go talk to him. But you could see God's providence all through the account. You could see God's sovereign hand permeates the account. And so God is obviously seen in this providential encounter. David sought guidance from the Lord, and God assured him of victory, but he didn't give him a blueprint of every step that it would take. Wouldn't it be great if God did that for you? I think that would be a fantastic idea. Show me every step I need to take from this point to the point that you want to take me, Lord, but the Lord just doesn't do it that way, does He? He doesn't, because He wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. And so here we see God's providence on display, and David didn't rely on spectacular miracles. Anybody that teaches you a miracle a day will keep the devil away. Stay away from that false Christianity. That's not how God does it. On occasion, He will heal your body. 
He will miraculously provide for you. God will do miracles, but a miracle by definition is a rare thing. It's a rare account. That's why you don't think of the rising of the sun every single day as a miracle, but it is. So understand that God will bring miracles in your life, but the way God works is He works in us and through us, doesn't He? Paul tells the Philippians this in chapter 2. He says, therefore, my dear friends, just as you always obeyed, so now, uh, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, note, it doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work it out. That phrase in Greek is ta'erga ek, and it means to take something that's, an, that's on the inside and get it outside. In other words, whatever that salvation is that you've already received by grace through faith, take it and work it into the mix of your life. And as you work it out with fear and trembling, look what God does, for it is God who is working in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. How does God work? It is as we work things out in the Christian life that we can see God's hand at work. Have you ever got to a point in your life where you looked back on the last 10 years or the last 15 years of your life, and at the time you couldn't see it, you were working hard, you were doing everything you knew to do, but then as you look through the rearview mirror and you see in retrospect what God has been doing, you go, oh, look at how God was providing for me. Look at how God was putting things together. God has been so faithful. As you work it out, God works in and through. Amen? That's how, that's how the Christian life works. That's how God works. And David has to teach his men this. And Paul has to teach the Philippians this. And we have to learn it as well. Number three, we see the principle of generosity. This is a big one. Do not miss David's generosity. This is in verse 21. When David came to... Uh, to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to go with him and had been left at the Wadi Besor, they came out to meet him and to meet the troops with him. When David approached the men, he greeted them, but all the corrupt and worthless men among them, those who had gone with David, argued, because they, they didn't go with us, we will not give them any of the plunder we recovered uh, to them except for each man's wife and children. We'll give them their families back, but we're not going to share any of this plunder. They may take them and go. But David said, my brothers, you must not do this with what the Lord has given us. He protected us and handed us over to the raiders who came against us. Who can agree to your proposal? The share of the one who goes into battle is to be the same as the share of the one who remains with the supplies. They will share equally. Now, the scribe who is writing this later, either during David's reign or after David's reign, this is what the scribe, this is his editorial note. And it has been so from, the day, from that day forward. David established this policy as a law and as an ordinance for Israel, and it still continues today. So it continued at least until this scribe's who wrote the book until his day, until his time. So once more, we find David uh, finds himself in the position of teaching his troops, troops the ways of God. Among their rakes are unethical and untrustworthy, unscrupulous individuals, yet they too contributed to the victory. Notice this, they contributed to all of his victories. Since joining David in the desert, these men have played a crucial role in his story. At the very beginning, when he had nothing, God brought him the disgruntled, remember, the indebted, and the disenfranchised, undoubtedly uh, men with questionable character, and David has had to make do in imperfect conditions. 
all the way through the story, all the way through the story, David has had to make do in imperfect conditions. And so he has a few troublemakers in his midst who don't want to share the plunder with those who are too exhausted to fight. And they don't want to, it's understandable, they don't want to give away what they so valiantly fought for. They put their lives on the line for this. That's understandable. But David knows the truth. Here's the truth. David teaches them the way of God's heart through friendship and generosity. David teaches them the way of God's heart through friendship and generosity. Verse 23 says, my brothers, he is gracious, calling these corrupt and worthless men my brothers. And we're we're reminded of Jesus of Nazareth, aren't we? who sat at the table in his final hours and predicted Judas' betrayal. Remember Judas? Judas leaves the table and makes a deal with the devil to betray Jesus into the hands of the Sanhedrin for a lousy 30 pieces of silver. And when Judas leads the temple guards out to the garden to arrest Jesus, the betrayer kisses him on the cheek. And what does Christ respond? You dirty, rotten traitor. He doesn't say that. He says, friend, do what you came to do. In that moment of betrayal, Jesus extends the hand of friendship to him and shows him love, a love that, frankly, he just doesn't deserve. And we see this. Christ provided for Judas too. Christ still provided bread and fish for that disciple. He saved him from the furious storm on the lake. Just like the others, he washed Judas' feet also, just as he had washed Peter, James, and John. Jesus served the people who were worthless betrayers. He served them too. And the hardest thing is to practice forgiveness and patience, to see our betrayers' humanity, and to defer to God as judge. I have a friend. I could hardly call him a friend. I'll just tell you this story. Uh, When I was a kid, they were next-door neighbors, and we had an ongoing family feud. And it was an old-fashioned sort of Hatfield and McCoy, uh, Hatfields and McCoys family feud. And we would often, those feuds would lead us to just fist, just brawling in the street. And so, yeah, a super great upbringing, right? And so one of the young men who, who used to be a friend of ours, and he sort of betrayed us. And then he and his brother would constantly break into our home and steal our stuff, and we'd find our stuff in their yard, or we'd find our stuff in their home, and we'd bring it back to our house. And so on my, the day of my dad's funeral, I was 14 years old, uh, they broke into my home and stole his watch and his wallet and his wedding ring and all of the pictures out of his drawer and all, some keepsakes, some stuff like that. Now, after this, I got saved, radically saved, loving Jesus, and I saw this guy in public. Now, if I had not been saved... It would have been a different story than I would be telling you right now. But I saw him, and I walked up to him. And in fact, he was sitting down uh, in a food court, and I walked up to him. I sat down right next to him, and I said, hey, man, I just want you to know I'm a Christian now. Jesus has washed me clean of all my sins because he died for me, and he rose from the, on the third day for my sins. And I just want you to know I forgive you. All is forgiven. And he's like, thanks, man. Well, we went our separate ways 37-something years ago, right? I see a couple of weeks ago, he posts on his Facebook page the day of his baptism at church, a church just like this, very similar to this. And they had pictures of him coming up out of the baptism tank just weeping, uncontrollably weeping because the Lord had saved him. 
And I'm telling you, there, folks, one of the hardest things to do is just leave it in the hands of the Lord. One of the hardest things to do in life is to just forgive and let the Lord sort it out. But that's exactly what we have to do. And David does it. And Jesus has to teach the apostles to do it as well. And we also note that David attributes the victory to the Lord entirely. Notice how he responds here. He says, you must not do this. Why? Because it is the Lord who gave us the victory. It is the Lord who protected us and handed these raiders over to us who greatly outnumbered us. David knows, he reminds them where their victory comes from. They did the scouting. They did the fighting and the dying. But it is God who led them there and gave them the victory. And so the cure to our stinginess, the cure to becoming a chintzy tightwad, is to be reminded that everything we have comes from the Lord, doesn't it? And he establishes a pattern which then becomes a policy. Now, when we know that all that we have belongs to the Lord, every dollar in my bank account, every breath in my lungs, every ability, every talent, all of my skill, everything I know, it all comes from the Lord. And the way we offer it to the Lord is by establishing a pattern of generosity, and then that pattern becomes a policy. And David is not just their soon-to-be king. He is their teacher. We have to see this. He's not just their king and their Lord. He's also their teacher. And what is he teaching them? He's teaching them to walk after God's own heart. And notice the scope of it, though. I won't read this next part. We'll put it up on the screen because even though I do read Hebrew, I can't read all these Hebrew names correctly, and I don't want to botch them. But look at what David does. He distributes the plunder not only to the 200 all of his men, even the 200 who had to stay back because of their exhaustion, but far and wide to all of these regions. Now, if you take a little map, if you're a nerd like me, and you track all of these places that he distributed the plunder to, this is what you'll find. It, 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 is, it is far and wide. David's generosity goes way beyond the men in service to him. It goes to this region as well. He isn't just generous to the men who stayed behind and watched the supplies. His charity is far-reaching. And so what's our application today? I think we can take a few things out of this. The first one is take refuge in the Lord, our strength. We take refuge in the Lord who is our strength when everything else around us fails. And at some point, Everything that you trust in is going to fail you. At some point, your health is going to fail you. At some point, old age is going to get you. At some point, you're not going to be able to work your job anymore. Everything we trust in at some point will fail us, and we take refuge in the Lord and in His strength. And this is what Jesus tried to teach the disciples in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. He says, therefore, this is in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of it. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a fool, a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. 
Now, right before this, Jesus says that many are going to come to me on that day, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, you're, you're our Lord. Did we not do all of these wonderful things in your name? And this is his response. You want to call me Lord? Who are the people who can call Jesus Lord? The people who build their life on his teachings. The people who understand that Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is not just a title. It's the people who make him the Lord of their life by following his way, following after his ways and his heart. And so the foundation of our lives, Jesus says, is everything. It determines whether or not we will collapse under the weight and the pressure of trying times in life or whether we will stand. So the question for us today is, are we finding our strength in the Lord? Have we developed the reflexive skill of finding our strength in God? Are we building our life on the foundations of Jesus' teaching? I think our next application here is quite clear. The heart that pursues God also pursues compassion and generosity. Sometimes an act of compassion, mercy, or generosity is is not convenient. Earlier in the story, they gave when they didn't have it. But notice now in the story, they give, give when they do have it. They give out of their abundance. They give both out of times of need and they give in times of, of abundance. And here's what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 112, 5 and 6. He said, good will come to the one who lends generously and conducts his business fairly. He will never be shaken. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 7 is a life that is unshakable. And a life that is unshakable is a life that follows God's heart in showing generosity and justice and fairness. And so, listen, we never look more like God than when we are giving. Why? Because God loved the world so much that he withheld his only son. That's not what the text says. God loved the world so much that he gave. He gave his one and only son. You and I never look more like God than when we are expressing our compassion and our generosity, whether it be out of our need and our lack or out of our abundance. And David doesn't give out of nothing. God has now given him something. God has now delivered all this plunder and abundance into his hand, and he has a treasure to share. He has a plunder to distribute. And like him, we give what God has supplied. We share the storehouses of all that we have received from the Lord. So have you received peace and reconciliation with Christ this morning? Have you received that? Then give that. Give that to others. Have you received grace and compassion today? Give that. Give that to others. Have you received material resources today? Good. Share that. Share that with the body of Christ. And to the day he dies, David must teach his people the principle of lavish generosity which is the only thing that can immunize us, listen, against a miserly and miserable life. Notice that the word misery and miserly have the same root word. The most miserable people are the most miserly. And David knows this lesson, and he's teaching his men this. He's not just their king, their soon-to-be king. He's their teacher, their disciple-maker. And this also inoculates us from idolatry. It's so great to have the blessings of the Lord. I hope you thank God all the time for every blessing that he's brought into your life. I hope you do. But we should never, ever allow our blessings to become our new gods. Never. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come as a congregation this morning. We come as a church body. 
and we commit ourselves to these things. Father, we commit ourselves to taking refuge in you, who you are our strength. In whatever circumstance we find ourselves, you are our, our foundation. And we build our lives on you. And we build our lives on your teaching. And we follow your words because they are true and they anchor us in reality. And so we commit to that this morning. God, we also commit our hearts to pursue your heart, which is a heart of generosity and giving, a heart of compassion and grace and mercy toward others. And Lord, may we never be shaken. May we never be shaken because we practice this, because we never look more like you than when we are giving like you. And Lord, we commit those things this morning. If, if, if you're here this morning and listen, you're not a believer, Jesus died on a cross for your sins. Jesus rose on the third day to vindicate his claims to be the Savior and Lord of your life. Will you embrace him this morning? Don't wait another day. Don't wait another minute. Embrace Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen.